Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We have got a great show for you today. It is part two of our two-part episode with Michael Joyce. If you have not heard part one, we highly recommend you go back now. Michael shared a ton of insight into his life as a high-level coach on the women's tour. He broke down his recent short but illuminating stint coaching Jeannie Bouchard. He told us about growing up with a tennis-obsessed dad who took lessons from Pancho Gonzalez and Bill Tilden and ended up building a tennis court in his backyard. He shared the story of how he came to work with the legendary coach Robert Lansdorp, how he lost Junior Wimbledon to Tomas Enquist, and how he injured his shoulder in a fall on the court. And he was just about to tell us about his relationship with the infamous Menendez brothers. So that's where we'll pick it up. Without further ado, let's jump right back into the third set of my interview with world-class player, championship coach, subject of David Foster Wallace's string theory, and true insider Michael Joyce. This episode is brought to you by Sergio Tacchini, the official apparel sponsor of Under Review. Do I have it right that you went to high school with the Menendez brothers? Uh, well, close. They went to Beverly Hills High. I went to St. Monica's. But Eric, Eric is two they years old. They were tennis players. Yes, they are tennis players. And I actually played doubles with Eric a little bit. And I used to practice at his house once a week. And he used to come to my house once a week. Eric and Lyle Menendez... Uh, for those of you who don't know who they are, they killed their parents. I'll tell you a story. Do you, you have time for a story that will blow you away? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So when I was 16, I played up in the 18s. And Eric was two years older than me. And so I actually played Eric in a lot of tournaments. And were they good Cal. players? Well, okay, so the older brother was Lyle. He was going to Princeton. I never met Lyle because he was always back east. Eric was decent. Like, he was like top, maybe top, 10 in Southern Cal. So he was good enough to make nationals. He was going to go to UCLA. I don't think he had a scar. He might have had a little partial scholarship. But, but this was a very wealthy family. Yes, they are a very wealthy family. They moved to California when Eric was probably about 14 or 15 because we only knew them for three or four years because they had actually lived back east. The father was an executive. Yeah, he was something in the movie business. He was a, a, a Cuban descent. The mom was super nice, blonde. She was kind of quiet. So I remember playing Eric when he was maybe 15 and I was like 13 or 14 because I played up a lot. So I always beat him. And he was a little bit of a maniac on the court. I actually liked him. My parents liked him. He was a funny guy, kind of, but he was a little bit of like a maniac. He had a big temper and this and that. And plus, I was a couple years younger. Uh, he didn't like losing to somebody younger. But, but he, good player, though. Good player. But alarmingly hot temper. Yeah, like, you know, like a short fuse. And But I will say a couple of my really good friends, who I'm still friends with now, he all played with him at Beverly Hills High. Because, like, this guy Billy Wright, this guy Lev Schwartz, these guys are st I'm still friends with all got along with him pretty good. You know, he was like a typical Beverly Hills, good-looking kid. I always thought maybe he took drugs or something. He was, you know, hyped up and everything. Um, but like, you know, never in a million years think something like, this is gonna happen. So actually- Well, hang on a second. Now, what did they do? They, so they, what they happened killed at, their parents. Yeah, so at Kalamazoo, I'm 16. It might have been the year Chucky won, actually, because he, I think he's the same age as Chucky. Yeah, because I played up that year. So Chucky won the 18s. I lost in the quarters. I was playing up. And um, Eric played that year. 
I actually, I think I played doubles with him there. But anyway, we went out to dinner with the parents a couple times. I always liked him. The dad was, you know, not overly friendly, but not, you know, he was like Cuban, looked a little rough around the edges. But I, my dad was tough on me. I thought he was like a great dad, you know? And so I got into the Junior U.S. Open that year. So I'm 46 now, so we're talking 30 years ago. So we didn't have cell phones, all this stuff. So I'm at the U.S. Open first week. I'll never forget this. My dad, my sister and my uh, my mom are staying in the city. They didn't like to go out to tennis. I'm going to play the juniors. I think I actually might have played qualies that year. I don't know. But it was that first week because Derek Rostanio was playing Boris Becker that year where Rostanio had match point and Becker hit the let court winner and went on to win the tournament. So I'm sitting in the crowd and this lady, I'm sitting with uh, uh, Vince Spady actually, and this lady comes up to us and says, did you hear what happened to the Menendez? But she was this Asian lady, so I couldn't understand her. She goes, did you hear what happened to Menendez? I said, no, what happened? She said, they were killed. I said, er- Eric and Lyle, she said, they were killed. But I, we thought she said, Eric and Lyle. I said, Eric and Lyle? And she said, yeah, they're killed. I said, what do you mean they're killed? Somebody went in the house, shot them, blah, blah, blah. And you know, I'm feel. I said, when? I said, oh, a couple days ago. You know, but it wasn't in the news here. What? A couple days ago. So, so, Vince and I go to find my dad. And my dad's out watching some outside courts with this guy, Mark Merklin's dad. Mark so, Merklin. Yeah. You know. So I find my dad. I go up to my dad and I say, you're not going to believe this. Eric and Lyle were killed. He said, what? He said, what? I said, yeah, Eric Menendez, La Menendez, somebody went in the house, shot them. My dad's like, oh my God, let's go. I need to go get a drink or something. He's like, what can you do? We got to, you know, I, I got to, <laughs> what can you do? We what can play. you do? Let's go get a drink. Yeah. So he went and got a drink. He said, when we get back to the city, I'll call this guy, Randy Wright, Billy Wright's dad, find out what happened. So my dad says, okay, let's meet in a couple hours. We'll leave. I feel sick, blah, blah. About 30 minutes later, my dad's watching the match. He gets a tap on the shoulder, turns around. It's freaking Eric Menendez. And he's like, hey, Mr. Joyce. My dad looks at him and says, oh, hey, Eric. Doesn't say, oh, my son thought said you're dead. He, but he knew something was wrong. And Eric said, oh, Mr. Joyce, where's Michael? And he's like, oh, he's somewhere. And he goes, well, I have box seats to today's matches if you guys want to come. So my dad goes and finds me in my how my dad dealt with stress. He's like, "What the hell's wrong with you? You can't start telling me the guy's daddy, you know, tapped me on the shoulder. Let's get out of here." Well, it turns out that they were back east for the funeral, and that was one of the big things in the in the case was that they had bought bought like these, you know, $2,000 box seats to the US Open. So they actually were trying to get my dad and me to testify that we not only saw them at the, because that's what happened. They found this trail that at first they didn't think the kids did it, but then when they found the trail of the money they spent, they went to the US Open, they bought a Porsche, they did this. To this day, I have no idea how or why they did it. I have my philosophy, I think the older brother was the mastermind. I think Eric was probably whacked out and went along. It's one of those things you can never figure out. But can you imagine? Those guys are in jail, Oh, man. they're in jail for life. I mean, there was two trials. I know a bunch of my buddies that were went to Beverly High and stuff had to testify. 
They had to testify in his defense, and some of them had to testify against them. They put this whole thing, they said they're sexually abused, they're the, you know, it was a huge, it was actually, I think, the first case that was on court TV, and it was right after the OJ case. So they became like superstars because the trial was on TV. And then the first trial turned out to be like a hung jury, and they then the became, second trial, they, they got convicted. They became superstars yeah. because they were like good looking. It was yeah. better. Than they, it was, they were on like uh, Everything. those all access, right. whatever you call that. Court uh, TV had just started. Oh, man. So that's, so that's, it wasn't like I was super close to them. I mean, some of my buddies were a lot closer with high school and all that, but I certainly you know, knew them well yeah, enough. How about the guy shut up at the U.S. Open, man? So they were basically on the run. Well, apparently they had planned it, everything. They went to Cheesecake Factory in Beverly Hills. They lived in a beautiful house on Elm Street, right on uh, in Beverly Hills. They got tickets to, like a movie, so that like they're at a movie. They went into the house, shot them, which is unbelievable. Shot them like a bunch of times. People, they made it look like a gangster shooting or something. Then they left, went back to the movie, came came back home, and then called and pretended they walked in their parents being like dead. So right off the bat, they weren't. You know, of course, they are suspects, but people also, I mean, I never in a million years thought they did it. Like, you know, we're like felt terrible for him. Eric actually went, decided not to go to college. This is where they started doing stupid stuff. And he actually hired a tennis coach and he went to Israel to play a satellite because he always wanted to be a pro. His parents were going to make him go to school. So he was in Israel when they picked up Lyle and then he came back. Uh, it, like basically he could have probably ran at that point, but oh I don't think they God. thought that, but they actually probably would have never got caught except that Eric talked to a psychiatrist and, and admitted that they did it. And then the psychiatrist wasn't allowed to go to the police, but the psychiatrist had his girlfriend in the next room like tape it or something. It was, you should actually look up the story. It's crazy. Yeah. But they didn't get caught till about six months later, but the police were watching them. We might have to revisit this on like a different Well, this situation. is just going to go on all, yeah. This Eric and Lyle Menendez, <laughs> yeah. Michael Joyce, here we go. So first of all, how would you describe your pro career? Um, you know, I, 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 had a lot of, I had a lot of good wins. I, I was really good for a couple matches. I dealt with a lot of injuries. I think that shoulder injury, even though it was my left shoulder, I think that uh, hurt me a little bit. It weakened my left arm where a few years later I ended up having a bad wrist surgery on my left side, um, which was my two-hand backhand, which is one of the, my best shots. Um, I always felt like I wore out a little bit, like. Um, like Chuck, you said that your serve was was not as. Not I mean, it as wasn't. I didn't have never had a great serve, but I'm also not that big of a guy. I mean, if you look at like you know, I'm not small, but I'm also you know, I'm not like Chucky's a good uh, three or four inches taller than me. Um, you know, he uh, he he had a good, pretty good serve until he hurt his shoulder. I had a great return. I was kind of played a lot like Agassi. I just wasn't as good, you know. Um, and also, my game took a lot out of me. You know, I returned really good. I had to wear guys down. I took the ball early. I hit pretty flat. But usually, by the time I'd get to the quarters, or I'd be tired, you know, or my body. Guys like Curry or these guys were getting stronger, and I was getting weaker. I don't know. If 
you know, how natural everything was back then either, you know. I mean, some of these guys were unbelievably strong or mooster, they, they never got tired. So, I mean, that's a nice way of me putting it. You know, a lot of guys were like that. So I feel like, Did you, you know, feel like these guys were blood doping? Is that oh, the they, who knows what they're doing? I mean, you know, I'm sure if you ask most of the players, uh, Tarango, you go down the list. I mean, talk to Jeff about it. I mean, these guys were inhuman, some of these guys. They used to play the Monte Carlo, these tournaments. The finals were three out of five, and then they'd be playing the next day, the next tournament. Well, they you know? play Munich the next yeah, day. Yeah, exactly. You know, and and you know, and I think a lot of guys, and they weren't testing back then. So what you know, what was stopping them really? I mean, I I had people approach me to get you know give me stuff. My parents were like, "There's no chance you're doing this," you know, but I got to like 50 whatever in the world and or 50 something, and and there was probably if I would have won another six matches a year, I would have been 20, you know? So, um, but then I dealt with injuries. And then at the end of my career, when I was 27, 28, which sounds ridiculous, because now guys are playing till 38, but uh, my mom got real sick and, and she had cancer at a young age. So I spent a lot of time at home with her. And then I went into coaching at like 30, basically. Um, what was your best moment uh, in pro tennis. I mean, I made fourth round of Wimbledon, which was really good uh, run. It was actually the first time I was in the main draw, and I made fourth round there. Um, I always did good at the LA tournament, which was a great tournament at UCLA. I beat Courier when he was number one there. I made semis there a couple times. Um, I, I made quarters of Key Biscayne and quarters of... Uh, of uh, yeah, I feel like you were Wells. right there. Yeah, I was right there. I had a lot of good wins. You know, like I would beat somebody like uh, Kafelnikov, and then by the you know, fourth fourth round, I'd lose to uh, Bjorkman or something. You know, I, I just, it was really tough. If I look back now, there's probably some things I could have, I could have done a little bit more physically, you know, maybe got a little bit physically stronger. My tennis was always, I felt like good. It just like wasn't, it wasn't, I, I just got towards the end of tournaments, I'd wear down a little bit. And a lot of these guys were getting stronger or, or stay the same. Uh, but for one match, I, you know, a couple matches, I had tons of good wins. I mean, I beat Michael Steak and uh, you know uh, Boris Becker and Courier. And My Raptor, man, that's incredible you know. wins. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, it's funny because I actually look back and I had incredible wins. The only guys I didn't beat, really, if I look at it, the only guys I didn't beat were Agassi, Sampras, and Rios. Never beat them. He never beat them. I lost to Rios about five times. He was the toughest guy I ever played. Sampras, I played close because you know he, you could, I could hold serve against him, and it was close. Agassi beat me, you know, tough. It was tough for me to play Agassi. Like you know, it's a matchup. But everybody else, I was, I, I beat them. I mean, it was just to consistently do it was tough, you know, for me. So we don't need to like sit way down on it, but. You got to tell us, I mean, when David Foster Wallace, I believe it was 1995. Yeah, that's right. And uh, he was yeah. writing a story yeah. for Esquire. Right. He actually came to Canada. It was 95, I remember, because I made fourth round of Wimbledon, and I did pretty good in D.C. I actually lost to Agassi, like, in the quarters or something. I had to go straight to Montreal to play qualies because my ranking wasn't high enough to get in because of the points. So I remember playing qualifying and I remember playing la second round. It was late at night and there was like nobody watching in the stadium except my coach. And then there was this like weird guy sitting up on the thing. And I remember he had leg warmers and like a, like a snow cap. And I kind of noticed him, but I was like, what's this guy do? It was like 11 o'clock at night. So then the next day I played Mark Knowles last round. The same guy was there. And then after the match, he came up to me 
He was really soft-spoken. He said, listen, he's like, this magazine details at the time, he said, this magazine asked me if I could do an article on a American pro who's not like a superstar. That's exactly how he put it. And I was like, oh, okay, thanks. And, and he's like, no. He, I'm sorry, yeah. he had a funny voice. Yeah, kind of soft-spoken, funny. He was like, looked like almost like a hippie kind of, you know. And he said, they basically told me I could choose uh, Chris Woodruff, Vince Spadia, or you. And all of us were the same age and all of us were ranked about 70 or something. And he said, I really like the way you play. I like, he said, you, you know, he said, I said, well, that's okay, but you know, what is it? And he said, well, basically, he said, I just need about three, four weeks. He said, if I could just follow you to some of the uh, press conferences or I could go in the car with you, he said, I won't get in your way, blah, blah, blah. So I said, sure, you know. And so he, um, I remember he was really nice. He, I let him come in the car with me. I ended up beating Rosetsky first round there, which was his first match back in Montreal, which was funny because the whole crowd was rooting for me, you know. Like, Greg Rosetsky was born in Canada and he basically defected because his right. father was English and he was going to get money. Montreal. He, he was going to get money from the LTA. Right, right, right. And yeah, it's he made like a, lot a real more Benedict money. Arnold maneuver. Right. So you played yeah, on Yeah, I actually have that match on tape. They, the whole crowd was full. <laughs> it was like they had posters that were calling him a traitor in French. They were like cheering for his faults. It was a joke. It was like the first, I never played Davis Cup, but it was like as close as I could get to it Davis Cup. It was a zoo. Yeah, zoo. And, they, and there was no way I could lose. And, and I beat him. And then I remember I lost <laughs> to Goron. And then, you know, he, this guy kind of just followed me around. I did a couple interviews with him. And, and, and you didn't know that he was at the, he, and well, he wasn't at the time. He you wasn't. Know, at the he time. wasn't. No, he like no. I didn't know him. Nobody knew he him. He was just a guy. He was just a guy. You know, he was a writer. He was a guy. And so, uh, you know, he went to one or two more tournaments. And the thing that was funny was, and he was cool. I think he liked me because you know I was I'm pretty relaxed with that stuff. He can. But the funny thing is, we both. He would always joke. He'd be like, "Hey, let's go get a good steak somewhere because it's on details." Uh, our friends at Racket Magazine in the premiere edition, they did a follow-up when they yeah. did an interview with you. They, right. did a, they did a story about you, and you yeah. said that he was all jacked up to go to yeah, the best, best was, place to eat. Which was funny because he dressed it kind of like a bum, you know? So skip ahead a few months. I remember him calling me up and he was really down. And he's like, hey man, he's like, you know, details decided not to run my piece. Well, because it was too long. Yeah, he said it's not really, they don't think it's right for the readers because the details more a lot of like, you know, teenagers and stuff. And well, he but said, well, this is the heaviest writing, see, man. The, yeah. It's like incredible exactly. the way he writes this yeah. story. And so I remember being like, I was like, listen, I didn't care that much. I didn't even know what it was going to be, you know? So I'm like, oh, okay. He said, is it okay if I like shop it around or what? I said, dude, just do it, you know, whatever you want. It's fine. So literally the next year, I'll, I'll never forget. I remember getting a call from this lady, like random lady that said, we need to come take pictures of you. It's for Esquire magazine. And I was like, for what? And they said, oh, we're running this piece. So, you know, then the magazine came out when I was at Queens. I was actually in London. And back then you didn't have the internet or it had no way of seeing it. Like my parents went to the store, they picked it off the shelf. And, and then I, when I got home, I read it. And then I actually didn't really like it that much at first because I didn't even know what the hell I was reading. Well, you know? he, yeah. his it's writing like, is like yeah. really heady stuff and yeah. he's very descriptive. And right. I read that it kind of messed with your head. He yeah, sort first, of yeah. described you as like balding and yeah, all this stuff. all this and, stuff and a virgin. And I'm like, how does this guy, you know, <laughs> we never even talked about this. But yeah. let me just say, the way I interpreted your reaction is the way 
I think of my reaction when I've read movie reviews of films I've made, right? right. So like, right. You, they, they say be, something, you're like, yeah. what the hell, exactly. It gets in your head. Yes. So, so something yeah. about the article got in your head. Yeah, especially at that age. I mean, I was 22 or something, you know, and then I remember, and it's a huge, you know, this is not even a tennis, because I think it was the first time that somebody wrote about me that wasn't tennis. I mean, it was ten, it was you know it was tennis, but he wrote personal stuff. And and it, I remember being that age and being like, how is he making this assumption that I'm a virgin or like you're how I don't look like that, you know? And and I but the thing is 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 I learned to as years went on, I, I learned to appreciate it because as I got more mature and stuff. And the scary thing is how many people have came up to me for years. I mean, I still have people to this day, I'll go to like a tournament, I'll drop off a rack and the stringer's like, oh you, man, I always wanted to meet you, that David Foster Wallace. And then he became a, you know, a, like a legend. The story is a full-blown masterpiece. The story was republished a year or two ago in a book called String Theory, which is all of his, like his short stories yeah, yeah. about tennis. Right. David Foster Wallace, Arguably one of the great writers of you know modern history, for sure. Who unfortunately uh, committed suicide. Right. Just, um, and you know what's funny? I never really like kept in touch with him. Like it was interesting. Like I, but I always felt that he like didn't want to like step on your toes or something. Like I felt like he would think like if he called me that or if he asked to come out to a tournament or that he'd be like putting me out. He was a shy, yeah, he was shy, a shy, quirky right. guy. Exactly, shy, quirky guy, right. Um, it sounds to me like you faded away in pro tennis on tour. How do you, how do you segue into coaching and well, how does it happen? I kind of got lucky in a way because, you know, I knew Maria since she was really young because she was going to Robert a lot, working with Robert a lot. I hit with Maria the first time when she was nine. I was over, I remember taking a lesson and Robert saying to me, hey, I got this little girl coming over, uh, she's Russian, her dad, people you, know, don't, you know. People don't realize that Maria Sharapova, she went to Florida, but she posted up in Southern California. Oh, half, about half and half. She retains yeah. a residence yeah. in Manhattan Beach, yeah. I believe. Yeah, no, she does. And when she was about nine or, or 10, hermosa. she was going, uh, you know, their main, they're mostly at Boletari's. It was cheap there and she had her thing, but she was coming three, four months out of the year to LA and working with Robert. And she was working with Robert because her dad loved the way Davenport hit and stuff. And, and so I remember hitting with her when she was like nine. And then I kind of always like had a little bit of a relationship there because I was a pro and they, you know, looked up to me and I was probably nice enough to hit with the, the guy's daughter, you know, Yuri, the dad. And so I kind of always, you know, I knew them a little bit. And so when she was actually like 15, that's about the time when my mom was kind of sick. I was still like on the tour, but I was spending a lot of time at home. And so I kind of needed to make some money. So I was hitting with her a lot when she was like 15. And then obviously, you know, I could kill her at the time if we played, you know, sets or whatever. Sure. So I was giving her advice and, you know, so I kind of like knew her. So, you know, it, when I transferred into coaching was basically to travel with her, to coach her, you know, travel with her. And That's when some I, way yeah, to start my exactly. man. Exactly, but at the time she <laughs> hadn't really like, 
you know, you knew kind of she was going to be good, but you still didn't know how good. And then, of course, her dad was very much involved at the time. The good thing about Maria's dad was that he had an unbelievable, a lot of parents feel like they're the coach. They're going to do, say this. Say, he, you know, he knew her game well at this point, but he also took her to great coaches. And he was always, I always felt completely free to, to tell her what I thought. And, you know, I, I, it, was, it was a good relationship because I was able to help her a lot when she was young. And then that turned into seven years, which people ask me now, why do you coach women? I said, well, after coaching her, it kind of put me in this women's coaching, um, you know, circle. So, why, why, you know, I, I'd like to coach men, but, you know, at times at home or whatever, but why would I coach a man when I'm one of the best female coaches? You know, it's kind of like, what I do because of Maria, obviously. And and um, you went to one in the world and you won three slams. Yeah, right. How come she could never beat uh, Serena Williams? Well, it's funny. People ask me that too. She didn't play Serena that much when we were together because she actually beat her at Wimbledon. She beat her the same year in the championships. Um, about a year later, she had three match points in Australia, lost to her, and like probably one of the greatest matches of all time. Serena beat her in the semis of Australian Open, like 10-8 in the third, and Maria had three match points. And then Serena had her couple years where she didn't play that much. And then they, I remember they played in Charleston and, and Maria lost in three sets. When Maria was number one, Serena was kind of coming back. It was three sets. And then honestly, they maybe played one or two more times. And then by the time when I stopped with her was when she played her tons of times, which was interesting. And I, you know, I, I think it got to the point, Serena started to play better. I think Maria started to play when she got her next coach and I thought she became very predictable. What happened that you um, broke up? It was a little bit of a weird situation. We had been together for a long time. I helped her get through her shoulder surgery, coming back from shoulder surgery. It was really tough to come back. Uh, she got actually, in a year, she got back to like nine in the world, which I thought she was doing great, you know, to get back because the doctor told me she there's a possibility she may never play again. I mean, she had a rotator cuff tear, which is a big injury. We had to change, do some changes on her serve. Was the injury um, derivative of the way she kind of snaps down on the wall? Well, a little bit, but the biggest thing is her shoulder is very loose, which if you, you, know, you look at like baseball players and stuff, that's like a blessing and a curse. If you watch her, especially slow when she's 17, 18, I think her service motion is one of the best. I mean, she had an unbelievable serve at 17, 18, 19. Um, the thing is, you'll see, very, if you look really closely, you'll see how far back her arm goes. Yeah, no, And it I, does that because it's her. It's not like somebody told her to do that. And if she lays on a table and you take her arm and pull it, there's about this much separation here. So what happens when you have that type of um, elasticity is they say all the years and repetition and so forth, uh, it moves around and it starts to cause you know some problems. And she, before even her shoulder was a problem, she had some issues with her pack. She she was always dealing with different like issues in her upper body. I overuse issues. Overuse issues. I think some of her physical, some of the stuff she was doing, maybe some of her trainers were working a lot. Um, if you'll see what she does now closely is she works tremendous amount on her back because the way she's even kind of, she's very strong in, in this area um, and not strong enough maybe in the back. And I know that was ultimately how 
the surgery didn't actually do much for her. The mm. doctor came out and said, you know, we went to Dr. Alchek here in New York. David Alchek, yeah. probably the most famous shoulder surgeon there is. He operated on Jim Courier. Tommy Haas, rebuilt his arm. Pat McEnroe. Dr. David Alchek, he's the baddest to the bone yeah. surgeon there is. Badass. In the shoulder. Right. He's a shoulder expert. Expert. Hospital for Special Surgery. Great guy, too. Great guy. So, you he knows saw, so Alchek did the surgery. Yeah, I mean, we tried, obviously, to do rehab. We tried to do everything <laughs> to not have surgery because she had a tear. She basically had a rotator cuff tear. So there's a, some chances sometimes you can avoid surgery and it gets better, but it's a long shot. But, you know, obviously, she's a young. She was 22 at the time, whatever she was. So we saw David. He came out, I remember he did the, went in to do the surgery, he came out about 25 minutes later, I thought they'd be in there for two hours, and he comes out and he says, uh, basically, I didn't do much. <laughs> you know, I cleaned it out, and um, he said, her shoulder's very loose, and he said, I don't, I, I'm not gonna tighten it up because it's part of the reason she's a great player. Um, so you just have to try to, um, you know, figure out how she heard it and how to avoid it. So you can imagine that's not that easy as for a coach to hear that or her. So we had to uh, try to do some things with her serving motion and you can imagine, you know. And so, you know, she got back up to nine in the world. I thought that was pretty good. She was pretty happy, but, you know, I felt like she got had a lot of pressure from her outside sources trying to, um, you know, we almost hired Connors, actually. And uh, eventually we hired Thomas Hawkstead, who they, Maria was hoping we could work together for a while, but that didn't work. I, it, it, it was not, so I stepped away, basically. And then um, did, uh, with, did, with it ever, so did Did Max Eisenbud have... Um... Yeah, I still have a good relationship with Max. I mean, I still, but, you know, I do think at that period of time, you know, they're used to her being number one, winning Grand Slams. I think that maybe they felt like I was coaching her, you know, for a really long time. I think maybe they felt I was also by her side for this almost year of non-playing. I think they felt maybe, you, you know, we needed a change. To be honest, I wasn't totally against it either because, you know, it's, it was a little tougher to push her after, at this point, you know, she she was going out with Sasha, the basketball player. She had about a year where she had like a normal life for the hey man, first time. You, it's went, not, yeah. you went through a lot with yeah, her. Yeah, you know, okay. and it's all sudden tough to, you know, we almost became like family in a way, you know, and that's hard sometimes. So at that point, it was probably best for us to move on. Was she taking meldonium when you um, coached yeah, her? Yeah, she was. She was. She definitely was. And meldonium was legal. Oh, yes. It was legal up until, I guess, uh, right before they put her in trouble or whatever. But I, I do also know probably every single Russian tennis player was taking it. Do you have any significant opinion about that? Was she cheating? Yeah, Is yeah she I do have a, yeah, I, I have a pretty strong opinion, actually, because I cannot, I, I think she was, the biggest thing she was guilty for was being stupid and the people around her being stupid. Not, not even her. I, I don't even put that much blame on her. Uh, was taking the drug throughout the career uh, sort of a cheat? Well, I mean, no, I don't think so because because first of all, it's a it's a fine line because every everything you take is is a performance enhancing. It's just whether it's on the list or not. So if I if I'm playing a match or or you know and you're a lot of people won't like me saying that, but at the end of the day, if you're playing a match and you're all of a sudden need to take Pedialyte and because you don't want to cramp, 
you're, you're trying to enhance your performance. When I used to play, you could take painkillers, you could take all kinds of things. You could Sudafed, you know, a lot of stuff. Now you can't even take that stuff. So little by little, they've added stuff to the list. Okay, now was that stuff helping her? Possibly, it might, it might have helped her a lot. I don't, I don't really know. What I know is when, I, when she was younger, 17, 18, she was on the same program, more or less, of uh, Safin and Kafelnikov, and they're how, all, it, because how, they're Russian medicines. How did that even come to be? Was it like? Well, number one, they should have been more on top of the list. I mean, my wife's a nurse, and she, uh, one right. of the girls I work for that don't have, um, you know, the whole teams around them, like Jesse or, you know, my, I give the list to my wife and it takes my wife maybe six hours to figure out what's on there because it's changing all the time. And there's names on there that you don't know what it is. It could be a, you know, 90% of the names you have to look up to see even what it is. So for Max, her dad, whoever wanted to take the blame to not be on top of her doctor, to not be on top and see that that's on there, is crazy to me, especially at her age, okay? Now, the thing is, is I remember specifically when she was 17, after she won Wimbledon and stuff, I remember her getting sick a lot, like especially with traveling, you know, sick like colds and, you know, yeah. you know, and she's a young girl. She's traveling around, she's playing, and she's getting a lot of colds and this. And I remember this doctor coming to Paris. It was a Paris indoors, actually. So she wasn't even 18 yet. She was 17. And I remember Yuri telling me, her dad said, oh, you should have this done too because what they do is they take a piece of your hair and then they go back and they see. Now, I was, you know, I didn't have much hair, so they had to take like a pubic hair or something. And they took it back to Russia and then they would see, you know, if you're missing minerals and vitamins, it's, it's just an, a analysis. Really good analysis, right. And in her case, I remember they said that, you know, she was missing all these minerals and stuff. So at that point, she was on a pretty heavy duty program. Now, with that being said, I, don't, I didn't know what half of, 90% of it was because it's all in Russian anyway. And, and they were drug testing stuff back then. The guy that did that was the Davis Cup and Fed Cup doctor. So it was stuff that was legal. So now, now you go ahead, what, 12 years later, and they all of a sudden throw this on a lit on the list, and then they say she's been cheating her whole life when probably half of the players are taking it. That's kind of a BS to me, you know. And I think that's why ultimately a lot of people will say, "Oh, she's a cheater. She's this." And to be honest, I think it's part of the reason that she's playing now. I think if that never happened, she'd be done by now because I think she, knowing her as as determined as that girl is. I think she want, wanted to keep playing because she wants to prove that she can win without this stuff, which is so, she doesn't have to do, but in her mind she does, which is actually making her worse because she feels more pressure. And on top of it, she's probably doesn't need to even be playing right now, you know? But how in the world the people around her did not get her off of that is beyond belief. And I think that this, what it was even more stupid than anything is once this happened, I think everybody panicked. And one thing about Maria, I know a lot of people think she's a bitchy and she's this or that. Maria is a very smart girl. She treated me unbelievable. She was unbelievable to me when my mom died. With her, she was like phenomenal. And she speaks unbelievable. Let her go and explain. Instead, stupid IMG writes this stupid thing saying she's diabetic 
and all this crap, and then it looks like she's like Sometimes it's not something. the crime, it's the cover-up. And one thing about Maria, too, you can see when she loses matches and stuff, she always puts everything on herself. And she doesn't like to make excuses. And this is the one time she should have said, you know, listen, I pay people lots of money to watch it because there's not one player there. Nadal, Federer, they're not reading that list because they don't know what's on the list. It's so, like, it's common sense. Like, you think Federer is looking at the list? So oh, uh, he doesn't know what it is. You pay somebody to do that. Maria, you know, and Maria took the full blame. It's stupid. That, that's my take on it. <laughs> well, it's a shame that that's on the books. It is. It's, and that's the thing, too. There's no way at, at that point of her career, she's not going to start cheating. She's not going to start taking it. It's ridiculous. She doesn't even need it. It's just a silly thing to be on the books. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about your work with Maria, Jeannie, and Tamea. We also talked about Joe Conta and Jesse Pegula in an earlier episode. Who are we missing? Well, I mean, I worked with Vika Azarenka for a while. The problem was is while we were together, she only played one tournament because she was going through that whole custody battle. And I actually left Jesse Pegula to work with Azarenka because I felt like she you know, she's, was number one before. I felt like she, she's an incredible workhorse. I mean, this girl... Uh, works hard. She she wants it. I ended up stopping with her because she she you know had off court issues and she wasn't playing. Um, I'm surprised she hasn't done better to be honest. Uh, Vika, is there any truth to what I've heard that she got big money from Yonex well, and made a racket change? Yeah, she freaked. Yeah, decided she couldn't use the racket. That's true. Went back to her Wilson freaked and is now playing with yeah. a black painted Wilson. Yeah, I when I started with her, she was just coming back from having Leo, baby. And one of the first things she told me before we even started hitting was she wanted to switch to Yonex. My sources tell me that they gave her close to a million dollar deal. Possibly, I don't know what she got, but she wasn't happy with Wilson because she felt that she had you know, done really well. To, you know, When she had the baby, dropped her ranking, Wilson wasn't gonna pay her unless she stayed in the top five, top 10. And, and they basically gave her a huge reduction because she was out. When she took kind of personally, she approached, or Yonex approached her, or she approached, you know, whatever, but they, I'm not surprised they paid her huge money because she was she was adamant about switching to Yonex. First thing I told her, Vika, you've been out of tennis for a year, do not switch rackets. The, the last couple tournaments that she had played before she got pregnant, she won the uh, Sunshine Double, I guess you call it. She won Indian Wells, Miami. Uh, you know, she maybe played one or two weeks after that. I said, you were playing great tennis. Don't mess with rackets. So she was with Yonix at, through, when I was with her. But like I said, she played only one tournament after I stopped with her. But she wasn't happy with the racket. Let's put it that way. She was not happy with the Yonix racket. We tried just about everything. And then when I stopped with her, she was kind of in the midst of this racket situation. So I don't know exactly what happened. But I do know a few months after we stopped and she started coming back, she was playing with her old Wilson, painted black. And she's done with Yonex, I know that. Yeah, I heard that Yonex was um, actually, um, 
uh, not that they could do much, right? When someone changes rackets, they, but they, I guess they let her out of whatever. Yeah, they whatever must have. I mean, it, you know, it's a tough situation because um, obviously, you know, you you got to be careful with rackets. I mean, rackets and shoes. I always tell everybody, you got shoes that work, you got a racket that works. Uh, you don't switch that. It's, you got to have rocks yeah, in your head. Not when you're a champion. Well, like that. I mean, there's a long line of. Uh, of people making racket changes that, yeah. and they wrecked their career. Wozniacki, I don't think, was ever the same after she left Bobolot. I remember when she went to, she was with Bobolot, she was number one in the world, and then I remember her switching rackets and she was down, down to like 80. And then same with Rodwanska, she was using this Bobolot. She switched like two years ago and then she stopped. I mean, you see it all the time. And I don't know why people do it, but uh, in Vika's case, I think she thought that she could get used to the Yonix because she was going to take a good three or four months to start playing. Because we trained for about three months, but it's just not the same. Listen up, kids. The racket is the extension of your arm. Exactly. You can't mess with your arm, man. That is not how it works. No, no. So listen up. You've heard it here before, but let me reiterate. Warm-up suit, bucket hat, Sergio Tacchini, absolutely free. The only thing crazier than a champion changing their racket is you not entering the Sergio Tacchini giveaway contest. All you got to do is hop on the Instagram, follow us and Tacchini, and when you see one of our giveaway posts, tag a friend who loves tennis. You'll be automatically entered to win a Tacchini warm-up suit and a Tacchini bucket hat. Our Instagram handles are Under Review Tennis and Sergio Tacchini Official. Follow us and tag a friend. We will announce the winner at the end of the month. Good luck. Now let's get back to the remainder of this epic two-part episode with the one and only Michael Joyce. Let's move into our fourth set. This is what we call a 10-ball scramble. This is not a deep dive. I'm going to say it, and you say what comes into your mind. Ready? Okay. The number one thing you learned from Robert Lansdorp. Discipline. The number one thing you learned from Coach Aparicio? Patience. The number one thing you learned from Andre Agassi? Um, phew, I learned a lot from him. Jeez. Um, strategy. What else? God, there's so many things. You spent a lot of time with Andre Agassi. Yeah, I spent a lot of time with him. I would say strategy and um, mostly strategy. I mean, it, Great tennis yeah. mind. The top thing you ever learned from Maria Sharapova? Um... Never give up. Top thing you learned from Jeannie Bouchard? Appearance is sometimes more important than substance. Azarenka? Heart, unbelievably hardworking, and um, loves the game. Pegula. How do you say it? Pegula? Uh, Pegula. 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 That somebody could have pretty much anything they want, um, but still is willing to make something for themselves and do the work and come back from so many things. It's, it's amazing. Number one thing you learned from your mother? Uh, love. Number one thing you learned from your father? Father, hard work, discipline, and belief. David Foster Wallace. As for somebody that's as great as he was at something, he was very humble, humbleness. Number one thing you learned from being on tour? Mm. I would say to take in the sights, take in what you have around you because, um, you know, it's a pretty amazing, you know, sometimes you just think about hitting the tennis ball, winning, losing matches, but the people I've met and the places I've gone will stay with me forever. Who is the greatest tennis coach in all of history and why? 
That's a tough one because they all have different... Uh, <laughs> I would say Boletari. I'll say Boletari because not necessarily because of his uh, actual tennis coaching, but the way he makes you feel. I never worked with him. Uh, I, I, when I was coaching Maria, I'd go to Boletari's and he'd make us feel like the greatest thing in the world. And if he could do that to his players, which I've heard, and make them feel that they're better than they are, there's nothing better than that. Let's move into our fifth and final set. This is called King of the Court. If you were the king of tennis and you could do anything to make a change in one quick swing of the racket, what would you do? Well, for me, it's pretty easy. I think they need to take a lot of the money that these Grand Slam makes and distribute it better you know, on the rest of the tour. I mean, it's to me, it's an insane that um, you have uh, 50,000, maybe 60,000 challengers now, or 25s, or, and even the women's 250s. These tournaments have been the same level money for 30 years. And that money is, is shockingly bad. You yeah, can't live. Yeah, it's insane. No, because, you know, they'll, like, they, like they say, U.S. Open. I, I don't know what the whole purse is this year, maybe 70 million. But they'll say, okay, 70 million, it went up uh, 10%. And they say, oh, that's great. The winner last year got 3 million. This year they're getting 3.2 million. And nobody cares. You know, that just makes the tournament look good. So, but that extra 200,000 for the winner, for Djokovic, you think even he doesn't even see that money. Now, that, that you know, that extra money um, should be distributed at least in the challengers. Um, just because of having the same purse points purse as when I played is crazy. I mean, and you know, and these Grand Slams are making nobody knows how much they make. But they're know? making a fortune. fortune. A fortune. I actually heard today that the U.S. Open this year is projected to make 1.8 billion. So if it makes, and I heard 10 years ago the U.S. Open was making 500 million. So that is about right. So if that was 10 years ago, you can imagine what they're making now. And the tennis players are getting 70 million out of that. They're getting like five, less than 5% compared to other sports. Now, not that Djokovic, these guys need to make more, but these, you know, these players that come here, they say, oh, 60K to lose first round, that's great. Well, they're paying for coaching, for their, you know, their teams, this, not to mention all the other weeks. I mean, it's ridiculous, and the players for the future are going to come from these challengers and from these 250s. And you know, I think the men's tour have gone up a little bit. You know, you see, but it's still ridiculous. I mean, where's all this money going? You know, where's nobody all the money knows going? where's the money going. I remember even when I was a kid, like I thought I should get a wild card one year. I was a few out, and then I talked to Stan Smith or whoever at the time, and he said, "Oh, the committee decided." Well, I've heard this word, the committee. USTA committee, I've heard this for 30 years. I have no idea who the committee is and I've never had one person tell me who the committee is. And so this committee, how much money are these people making? And it's like, uh, I'm surprised they haven't done a full investigation to be honest. So I, I think it's, it's ridiculous that these challengers and these people, players and the, you know, you don't need, these guys or women rank six, 700, they don't need to be making a lot of money. But if you're in the top 200, 250, 
three, 300. I was in Vancouver last week and watching these guys. It's, it's a joke. Kokonakis playing somebody for 500 bucks. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's like playing. It's like playing yeah, it's like, like the criminal. money tournaments back in. Yeah, uh, it's criminal. I mean, Park, yeah, man. I mean, it's criminal. I mean, it's, it's a little too much. They yeah, need to figure that they out. They got to figure that out. Michael, uh, listen. Thank you very much. I feel like we need to maybe bring you back on yeah, as a fun. recurring personality on our show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's been an honor. Uh, you are released. Thank you. It's fun. Huge thank you to Michael Joyce. We'd like to thank Sergio Tacchini, the official apparel sponsor of Under Review. See what they're doing at SergioTacchini.com. We want to thank Patreon subscribers and my cousins, Brad and Amanda Shapiro. Welcome to the Under Review family. We hope that you enjoy the autographed copy of Racket Magazine. The only thing better than the Shapiro family is the Under Review family. <laughs> That's so stupid. I don't know if I really believe that, but you want to join the under review family and get cool perks, please head on over to patreon.com slash under review tennis. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash under review tennis. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you to Jenna Joyce for turning the coach onto us. And thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. We also love hearing from you, so if you have a topic you want explored or a person you want to hear from, please let us know. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com, at UR with CS our Twitter handle. Underreview Tennis is our Instagram and Facebook. And to catch some clips from some of our interviews, please check out our YouTube page. Our producer is Scott Tuff, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.